This afternoon we'll return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And whereas yesterday we attended to the coarsest suffering, the most easily identifiable level of suffering, latent suffering, the suffering of suffering, which doesn't really take much of any wisdom. Everybody knows what it's like to hurt mentally or physically. But today we move to a more a suffer dimension of suffering that takes some insight, some wisdom. It's called the suffering of change. And it does not imply that simply the fact that there is change in the world, that all conditions phenomena are in the process of change, that they arise and pass, is not implying that by that very fact, therefore anybody who is in a world of change must suffer. Otherwise there would just be no there would be no release from suffering at all, unless you just had not even a finger hold in this manifest world. But rather the the suffering of change, Gyodomatadam, is related to change, but that's not the source. The source is not impermanence, but rather the source is attachment. So among the three poisons, the one that's most directly related, most explicitly related to the blatant suffering, is anger, because it's really quite unpleasant, and it comes from a feeling of dissatisfaction, displeasure. But among the three poisons, the one that is directly related to the suffering of change is the second toxin. A mental poison, and that is craving, attachment, greed, that mental affliction. Bear in mind it's crucial. There's a lot of material that one can cover this time, and I'm going to try to be very concise. It's very important, it's absolutely vital to recognize that the mental affliction of attachment, let's call it that, it's, it's craving and attachment. It's, it's, when we have attachment, when we have this mental affliction, raga or tanha, dacha, uh, in Tibetan, when we have it for something, if, if it's directed towards something we don't have, haven't acquired yet, then it's called craving. Once we've got it, then it's called attachment. But it's one term, one term in Tibetan, dacha, dacha. It's vitally important to recognize that the mental affliction of attachment is not the same as the impulse of desire. Desires can be wholesome, they can be dava, dava. Desires can be wholesome. Otherwise, they can lead you towards enlightenment. The desire that all such beings may be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. That is a desire. It's the aspiration of compassion. So aspirations, desires may be wholesome, they may be, neut- they may be neutral, they may be unethical, very toxic, very harmful. But it's absolutely not an ideal of Buddhism that one has no desires whatsoever because it's a, ridic- it's a ridiculous idea. So it's really very crude, crude, a caricature of the Buddhist ideal of being free from attachment is a mental affliction. And what is that mental affliction? When it's focusing on an object, when it grasps onto it, so the grasping is always there whenever there's attachment, by definition, by definition, attachment is always rooted in delusion. If there's no delusion, it's not attachment. There doesn't need to be delusion underlying desire. It can be, it can be coming out of wisdom, coming out of all good things. But whenever attachment, the mental affliction attachment arises, it always has it root in delusion. It's grasping onto an object, it's seeing that object as somehow intrinsically desirable, as a source of joy, a source of pleasure, a source of happiness. It tends to distort the vision of that object to see it as being entirely positive, so it tilts it all towards desirability. It tends to sift out the undesirable aspects, and the neutral aspects are all also seen in a rosy light, tilting towards desirable. So it's, it's cognitively distorted, 
and it fundamentally misapprehends the nature of, of reality because no object is an actual source of pleasure. They catalyze it, but they don't, they're not sources of pleasure. And the source of pleasure is your own mind. So, to move quickly, to move quickly. It's very, very important to distinguish between desire, which of all wide variety, both and so forth, the mental affliction of attachment, and insofar as attachment is operative, active, dominating our engagement with anything at all, then the suffering of change is there. And it may feel very good. The suffering of change may be very pleasurable. It may be delightful, like blissful, and still called the suffering of change. For the time being, the actual feeling arises. Vedana, sorva, is pleasurable, no question about it. But because it's completely saturated by, or tinged by, the attachment, it's just setting yourself up. It's like getting some really gourmet honey that's been laid right on the edge of a, a laser, uh, not a laser, a razor, and going, mmm. The first impression is very good. And then you find, you know, I have two tongues. Right? So the second impression, not so much fun. And so attachment, as you're experiencing it, may be very pleasurable. But it's a time bomb. Attachment is always a time bomb. And that is just waiting for something to fall. And so all of the misery that comes as a result of attachment then it's blatant suffering that even while we're experiencing the pleasure of anticipation of getting something, getting something, holding on to it, enjoying it, having it, and so forth, it's just waiting to happen. It's the dissatisfaction, the, the, the dissatisfying nature is just bound to arise. It's already there. It's like a virus that hasn't manifested yet, but it, the virus is right there in the experience itself. So to not simply conflate desire and, and attachment is crucial, Another one, utterly crucial, and it's so, so much in our lives, is not to conflate loving-kindness with attachment. And it happens all the time. For one reason, in English and in many European languages, if not all of them, we have one word that's supposed to cover both. Love for all of humanity, love for sentient beings, and so forth. It sounds like loving-kindness. But, um, of course, love can just be flat-out lust. It can be just a crack. It can, it can be all kinds of stuff. We know that. And so, when one word covers the noblest of aspirations of love and kindness, and also covers just flat-out lust or craving, I love, I love what Porsches or whatever, then we see it's, it's a word that just covers so much territory, it's almost useless in, in some ways. And so, it's often said that to enter into a very loving relationship, a partnership, a friendship, a, to have children, to have a spousal relationship, a romantic relationship, that this always brings with it. It's just inevitable. It's human nature. It's human existence. That whenever we form close bonds with people, that we just that suffering is just the nature of reality. Nature of reality. And that comes from a com complete conflation of love and attachment. Buddhist worldview, in a single moment, so we come back to the point earlier of pulses of cognition, as we engage with another person, let's say it's a spouse, as we engage with that person, and whatever, attending to that person in a, in a mind moment in which loving kindness is arising. We genuinely care for that person. We are longing for that person to find happiness, to be well, to be fulfilled. When that's arising, attachment isn't there. When attachment's arising, 
attachment being self-centered, this person is an object of gratification, this person is necessary for my well-being, this person makes me happy, I want this person, I want you, I need you. I just said I for every single sentence there. Loving kindness doesn't need the word I in it at all. May you, may you, may you. It's all about you. And attachment is really fundamentally all about me. And so in a single mind moment, if attachment there, loving kindness isn't there. Loving kindness is there, attachment isn't there. They have different foci. They're telling different things. And so the notion that any close relationship necessarily has to entail suffering is a notion based upon blurry thinking. Blurry thinking. It's not the case. Not the case. And this is the great challenge of leading a life that is utterly dedicated to Dharma while not being a monk or nun not being renunciate, simply a yogi living in a cave. If you're a monk or not, in fact, you're, you're following a way of life where if you disengage from all attachments altogether, it's quite okay. Quite okay. You're a monk. In Tibet, if you become a monk, you might never see your parents again. Because you, you, your monastery may be three months hike away from your parents. You may never see them again. So you really sever your attachments and you become a homeless person. That's the idea of becoming a monk and then you become a homeless person. So all of your personal attachments, you just snip them. And you go into a, into a new environment, you get you have a, a, an extreme makeover, you get a totally new haircut, for most of us a totally new haircut. And and then you're a, a, a cross-dresser. If you're a man, suddenly you're wearing a dress, and that's a bit odd. You know. And then you get a new name. It's like a witness protection program. You know, so they can't track you by your haircut, nor by your clothing, nor by your name. And back and back in the old days, you didn't have a passport or driver's license. So really, you know, there you are. You are now on your own. So you've really cut all your ties. Right? So in a way, that's a very simple. That's a very simple way to practice dharma, because you've set yourself up into a situation where you're down in a new environment, totally new people around you. And if you want to be completely devoid of attachment, you really have that option, right? Whereas if you're married. If you have children, then you have a commitment. You have a commitment to your spouse. You have a moral obligation. You should be taking care of your spouse. It's not just any other such a being. That's your spouse. Those are not just anybody's kids. They're your kids. They lie upon you uniquely. So therefore, you're not obliged to have attachment, but you are obliged to have a very strong bond there. Special responsibility. As the Dalai Lama has for the Tibetan people. As an abbot of a monastery has for the monks or nuns in that person's monastery, and so forth. So I don't want to run on too long, but grief, unhappiness, often arises in human relationships, especially when the human relationship comes to an end, as in the death of a spouse, death of a parent, let alone, and clearly there's no question it's tragic, but the death of a child, there's no question. But the Buddhist response there is, is very tough, very tough. He said, when we experience suffering with respect to another person, it's not because of our love, not because of our loving kindness. It's because of our attachment. And we so often blend them. I love you so much. I love you so much. I couldn't live without you. That's how much I love you. I couldn't live without you. If you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. That's how much I love you. I'm sorry, but there's a really good word for that. It's called bullshit. You know, that's not love. That's not love. That's not loving kindness. That is attachment. I love you so much, never leave me. What, but what if it's in, in your best interest to leave me? 
You need to go to college. You should, you should travel. You should get a new job. You should do... Well, never mind that. I can't live without you. I love you too much. And so, it's based upon insight, existential insights, and there are four of them, and I think we'll end there and go to the meditation. But to rest in a flow of awareness of what's really going on is to rest in the awareness of wherever there's birth, there is death. And just to know that all the way through. I am born, I'm going to be dead. So that shouldn't come as a surprise, whether it happens tomorrow or happens in 30 years. There really should be no surprise there. Because I'm vulnerable to death today or tomorrow. That, that should not be a surprise. I'm 60. People have strokes, heart attacks. They get hit by cars. They get bitten by cobras. All kinds of things can happen when you're 60. Right? So it's, it's not an immune period. Even though I think I'm in good health right now, I could be on my death door tomorrow. And it shouldn't be a surprise. Because it could really happen any time. Any time is good for dying. In the womb and any time thereafter. So wherever there's birth, there's death. And so with respect to oneself, but with respect to a relationship, just to know that this relationship, even if it's a loving relationship, a completely trusting, committed relationship, a lifelong relationship, well, unless both partners end at the same time, the relationship is going to be terminated because one of them is going to die first. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. It's the way things are. So don't be shocked. And there's no reason to be sad about it because it's just the way things are. Somebody's going to die first. So wherever there's birth, there's death. Wherever there's meeting, there's parting. So get over it. And you just know it from the very beginning. Wherever there's meeting, with anybody, with anything, there's parting. So don't be surprised. When your kids go off to college, your kids leave. Maybe a spouse leaves. Friends leave. You leave. There should be no surprise. It's what always happens. Absolutely no. And it can happen at any time. Wherever there's acquisition, there's loss. I got this iPhone. Well, not for long. It's going to leave me, I'm going to leave it, but it's going to be gone. This relationship's going to be over. <laughs> and then finally, wherever there's elevation, you know, when it comes to some high position, whether it's whatever it may be, you know, you know the scoop, but wherever there's elevation, it's going to be wherever there's a, there's a rise, there's a fall. It's kind of like existential gravity. And once you not be surprised. Don't be surprised, it's what always happens. And so when it's just flowing through life with that awareness ongoing, then the, the tentacles of attachment tend to be, be withdrawn, not so strong. And the less attachment there is, the less suffering there is. And so it is in fact possible to be living in a world of change where your body, your mind, and everything in your environment is always in a process of flux, of change, almost all of it entirely out of control. And you don't need to suffer. You don't need to suffer. The only reason suffering is there is because of attachment. So as we go into the meditation momentarily now, I'd like to get a start from the center. It's a little bit non-traditional, but I think it's not in any way antithetical to the Buddhist teaching. But consider, if you will, as we focus in on this mid-range, and it's something of a psychological truth. This doesn't require any faith in anything. The psychological truth that the suffering we experience, the mental suffering we experience, can always be traced back to grasping, to attachment clinging, craving. Almost true. The mental suffering experience. Can you trace it? Can you, when you, when you go into the meditation, if you think back to, on times when you've mentally suffered a great deal, can you, can you trace it? I'm not saying this is a matter of dogma. If it's not true, it's not true. But the Buddhist hypothesis is, here, check it out. And the, the chances are you'll find it traces back to attachment. And in so doing, then it's not a time to condemn yourself, to look down on yourself, but rather to feel compassion. 
I suffered there at that time, I suffer now, I'm vulnerable suffering, mental suffering in these ways, as an attachment. And then arousing yearning, may I be free of the suffering, but also the underlying attachment. As we extend from the center, then we go out and out and out to all those who are suffering. And yearning now with some insight, some psychological, deep psychological insight. May we all be free of suffering and the underlying causes, specifically the suffering and change, the underlying cause of attachment and craving. Final point, very brief, is we crave things because we think they're going to help make us happy. That's simple. Or make us safe, but something we want. But we crave things because of some anticipation we'll get something good that we want that'll make us happy. Whether it's happy as in safe, happy as in blissful, happy as in thrilled. But when the trick, this, relating this back to the meditation from this morning, when we experience this objective impulse of craving, attachment, desire arising, instead of fixating as we normally do on the object and then feeding the flames of the attachment and craving by focusing on that which is arousing it, in the settling the mind, we invert the awareness right in upon that impulse of craving and attachment, observe it, and in observing it, just its pure nature in and of itself, with res- not with respect to some particular object, but just looking at attachment and craving arising, then we may note that its nature is one of bliss. Bliss. It feels good to crave something. In anticipation, I can get it. And then when we get it, it feels good, I got it. So the bliss, in a way, feels good. It sets us up for all kinds of misery. But the bliss, the, the craving itself, has a quality, if you look right at its naked nature, is we like attachment because it makes us feel good. And for people who have no dharma, their whole investment in finding happy, uh, happiness is all invested into attachment. The pursuit of hedonic pleasures, which is all driven by attachment and craving. But the attachment itself, that impulse, has a blissful quality to it, and that's why we like it. That's why we like it. We perpetuate it. And we get disappointed in one, one person or one object or what have you, then we, we find something else to be attached to. Like, chain, like a chain smoker. Oh, that's not a stub, it stinks. Oh, but a new cigarette. Ah, it makes And so, of course, where is that tracing from? Where is that bliss of attachment? Where is that tracing from? What's it stem from? Not the object, of course. It stems from your substrate consciousness. That's the second quality. So the anger traces back to luminosity, and the attachment traces back to bliss. Quality of your own substrate consciousness. So, why go for the outer shell? when you can trace the bliss right back to its source, the relative source, substrate consciousness, and enjoy the pure strain, relative to pure strain of bliss, without dependence on any object at all. Because it's your own heritage, your own birthright, the nature of your own awareness. So, for all of those who are mixed up, thinking their bliss lies outside, source of happiness outside, just recognize it. <coughs> give rise to compassion. Shantideva says that while we uh, we seek happiness. We hasten after the very causes. We, as we seek, su- as we seek to be free of suffering, he says, as we seek to be free of suffering, we hasten after the very causes of suffering, out of delusion. And as we seek happiness, we destroy the causes of, of our own happiness as if they were our foes. Focusing on those two themes, let's give rise to a sense of compassion. Oh, Lasso, let's practice.